Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Over the past year and a half, in part because of the hateful and racist rhetoric of failed politicians, hate crimes against Asian and Asian American people have been on the rise in our country. To discuss this troubling development, I've invited Varun Nakor, Executive Director of the AAPI Victory Alliance, on the show. The group Stop AAPI Hate released new data saying it recorded nearly 3,800 anti-Asian hate incidents between March of last year and February of this year. These attacks are getting the attention of Hollywood, law enforcement, and the White House alike. President Biden signing an executive order his first week in office acknowledging racism towards Asian Americans. They shot up a fault there. They shot up two spots here. So we need to make sure if we have any Asian spies, we need to be checking on them. The shootings took place as violent hate crimes and discrimination against Asian Americans has risen dramatically over the last year and more. Hi, my name is Varun Nakor, and I'm fighting data invisibility for the AAPI community. Sorry, not sorry. Varun, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. I want to start with you telling us about the AAPI community in America. Thank you, Alyssa. Great to be here today. And I think our community is sort of at a crossroads right now. What we witnessed in the 2020 election was, frankly, the greatest turnout of any demographic, any community, probably in the history of the United States of America. And Sort of the subtext of all that was that that acceleration and that growth of turnout in our community was largely driven by Trump's vicious rhetoric over the last four years. And then, of course, with the further backdrop of what Trump was calling the China virus and the Wuhan flu and all those vicious names that actually drove up the amount of hate against our community and sort of unfortunate, but that was largely the driver for the vote last year. So sort of good news, bad news. And I think we're still dealing with the after effects of all that right now. For as long as I can remember, I feel like, and I've been thinking about this a lot in the last couple of days, the GOP platform has basically always been about fear-mongering, at least as long as I've been involved with politics. I don't ever remember a time when it hasn't been about hate and fear. Can you give us a history of AAPI people in America? It feels like a part of our fabric that we're almost not taught enough about. I'm certainly no expert, but obviously in the last 60 days, 90 days, I've been reading more and more and I feel more educated on this. So, I mean, AAPIs have been in this country, frankly, since the revolution, and it doesn't really get talked about that much. There were waves of migration, much like waves from 
Europe and elsewhere. And one of the first and large waves was of Chinese American immigrants in the late 1800s to build our railroads and to work in our mines. And the Japanese Americans came shortly after that in Hawaii and on the West Coast. And then there were waves of Asian immigrants from China and India that came in the 70s. And that's when I came here. I came here in 1969 as a two-year-old. My dad arrived the year prior to finish his schooling in North Carolina. And there was a large influx of Chinese Americans, Korean Americans, Indian Americans that came that really is the wave that's now propelling a lot of this growth that we're seeing in the United States. And then let's just touch on the challenges AAPI people face here. We're invisible in society to a large degree, and we're otherized. And I happy to provide more detail on all of that. But some of it's, I would say, of our own doing, because as a culture, every API sub-ethnicity obviously has its own traits. But for the most part, if I were to generalize, I would say that we're not taught to really stand out of the crowd, right? At a young age, at least I can remember, speaking from personal experience, it's pretty much work hard and your achievements will prove themselves You don't necessarily need to be boastful about them and certainly don't stand out. And that's the way that I was raised. And I know a lot of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders to a degree are taught the same. Given the hate of late, we've been taught to be more vocal. And we realize that you can't hide because in many cases, violence is going to stare you in the face and you need to protect yourself. You need to protect your parents. You need to protect your children. And so it's an interesting time right now, to say the least. Now, Hollywood A-listers speaking up, bringing attention to the alarming problem. Actress Olivia Munn has a personal connection to the assault in New York, saying on Instagram, my friend's mom is a 5'3", 50-plus Chinese woman, and she was attacked. She left the hospital with 10 stitches in her head. These racist hate crimes against our elders have got to stop. We're going to find this guy. Crazy Rich Asian star Aquafina also spoke out after the incident, saying she didn't want to wake up to more of this. My husband keeps asking me, he keeps saying, I don't understand. Is the violence against the AAPI community that's happening right now, is it new? And I don't really know how to answer that. We've recently seen some truly horrific hate crimes, just some of the most violent hate crimes caught on video at members of the AAPI community. So is it a new thing or has it just been happening in the background and we have just not heard about it? I suspect the latter. And that's simply because one of the things that I'm fighting for the most is to ensure that we don't remain indivisible in society. And we often are. For example, Stop API Hate, which has been doing an enormous, amazing job just trying to lift up and surface many of the crimes and actually reported in hard numbers and hard counts. They've said even recently that even though COVID is on the decrease, that hate crimes are still on the increase despite the spotlight. I suspect that it isn't new that it's actually been going on for a long time. And one of the things that we face in the API community is just tons of microaggressions on a daily basis. And yes, on occasion, they actually grow into actual crimes. And as we saw in the vicious murders in Atlanta, and then a few weeks later in Indianapolis against East Asians and then South Asians primarily, 
that it reached a head. Gunfire broke out at the FedEx facility near the Indianapolis airport. The gunman took his own life. Indianapolis Police Chief Randall Taylor also noted that a significant number of employees at the facility are members of the Sikh community. And I don't think anybody in the API community was surprised, frankly, that that happened. I mean, we were shocked, but we weren't surprised because it was going on under the surface. And a large part of this is in the sort of the category of we don't know how long this has been happening because local governments, state governments, and to a degree, even the federal government, they don't even track hate crimes that are sub-aggregated. A lot of times they don't even ask for racial information which makes it really hard. And if you recall, right after Atlanta happened, the local sheriff, head of police there, said it wasn't a hate crime. And everybody in the world knew that it was a hate crime. Right. And he came out and said, no, it's not a hate crime, and had to walk that back. It felt like there was an actual effort to whitewash the crime. Completely. Complete whitewash. And if you're a white guy in the South, chances are you view hate crimes perhaps out of just a certain lens. And that's what I sort of mean, that there's just not this recognition that we exist and thus a crime where six Asian Americans and two non-Asian Americans who were killed in Atlanta, that somehow is not a hate crime. I don't know what the litmus test in his mind was, but It's the data invisibility that we face perpetuates in so many ways. How are we going to propose and work with Congress or local legislators if we're not even tracking on a sub-aggregated basis? So let me ask you this. What impact did COVID have on API people here? And how did the racist rhetoric that we all heard about it coming out of the Trump White House, how did that affect people? It was sort of a double whammy for us. All of the world, all of America is reeling in their own minor and maybe some major ways because they're having to deal with the health effects of the pandemic and the social effects. And then layered on top of that, If you can't even walk down the street without fear that something's going to happen, if me with a 77-year-old mom is constantly worried about my mother being attacked in some way, and I can't even see my mom to help her. Out of the urgent search for the man behind another brutal attack on an Asian-American woman, video shows a man repeatedly punch and kick the 65-year-old victim who was on her way to church yesterday in Manhattan. And a nearby security guard who watched it happen has now been suspended. That just layers on so much additional stress and anxiety, and that's what made this sort of a doubly difficult time for APIs. But specifically, let's talk about the violence and the impact this violence has on the AAPI community, on communities, and the larger conversation on the country. The violence, yeah, it was just really, really hard to see for anybody. But when you can see your own grandfather or grandmother in the videos that are circulating all over the internet and on TV on a daily basis, 
it just hits you in the gut. There was so many times after Atlanta and Indianapolis where I'm just on my couch and I'm getting so emotional because you see your own family in that, whether they're your direct family or not. It's sort of a cultural thing in many of the API populations to call someone uncle, whether they're your real uncle or not, or call someone auntie, whether they're your real aunt or not. And it was really, really hard to take. And it still is. And the optimist in me always wanted to believe that when COVID started to decline, that perhaps the hate would decrease. And the stats are not saying that at all. They're saying they're still on the rise. How much do you think generational trauma plays into the pain that the AAPI community is feeling right now? That's an excellent point. I think it likely does play a lot in the trauma that we're feeling right now because we're also taught to sort of repress our feelings. AAPIs are the worst when it comes to talking about mental health, you know, and certain cultures are. I mean, I can't tell you one culture that I know that loves talking about mental health. Well, that's not true. Italians will love to tell you about (laughs) everything from their diarrhea to their mental health. Right. (laughs) I'm always like, okay, uh, too much information. We don't need to be talking about this right now. (laughs) Yeah. So you get therapy on a daily basis, perhaps. Right. I can't get away from therapy. I think a lot of us are just not taught to deal with it and talk about it even. We're taught to repress it as if it'll magically go away. But we all know that it'll manifest itself in so many other ways. And that's not good for our psyches. I really applaud a lot of the younger generation right now who are talking about this and providing resources to their parents and their grandparents so that there's an outlet. But there's a lot more work to do there. I want to ask you about the activist community and your thoughts on the activist community in America and whether or not we are paying enough attention to this issue. Or do you feel like there's maybe a conflict with some other racial justice movements? I think what Donald Trump has done from a silver linings standpoint is essentially taken what might have been a 10 or 20 year empowerment cycle for our community, because we were still rising. We didn't really have this political voice that we are starting to now, but he compressed in four years what would have taken likely a decade or two. And so I think the question is going forward, what does the community, what do these newfound activists now do with their voice? We need to channel it in a very positive way. And it could go off kilter. These voices could be quelled. I think one of the things that we're constantly trying to fight is to make sure that groups like ours, the API Victory Alliance, the API Victory Fund get funded because what we saw in this last presidential cycle was rather extraordinary, right? Number one, a 46% increase in turnout from one presidential cycle to the next. That's never happened before. And anywhere, and I've talked to dozens of people and they can't cite where it's happened in that magnitude. The numbers are trickling in and early data on Asian American voters showed that the AAPI community is coming out to vote, especially in swing states. The National Education Association shared their findings with the Filipino American Los Angeles Democrats. The study that focused on 875 Asian Americans in 10 battleground states found that younger voters who did not show up to the 2016 polls are leading an increase in voting. 
And that increase was four times the increase of the general population. So we had record turnout. I think it was a once in a hundred year record that we had in the 2020 cycle. And to outperform that by four times is just extraordinary. But I'll give you an example of why perhaps that's good news on one hand, but it could go backwards is if you look at in 2020, we lost two congressional seats in Orange County, California. And depending on the congressional district, it might be between 18 and 24% Asian American and Pacific Islander vote there. And we lost two congressional seats after having flipped them in 2018, because we simply took our eye off the ball. And we stopped communicating. We thought it was a one and done. Oh, we won that two seats and we will move on. We're okay now. And we lost. And everybody was talking about how, oh, California, it's on this blue cycle, even in Orange County, which has been red since Ronald Reagan. It was the last bastion of (laughs) Republicanism in the state. Well, it went backwards. And that's exactly what could happen nationally if we don't continue paying attention to this. And to address your other point about activists, We saw probably the most amount of organic activity in the API community in the 2020 cycle. And I know it was organic because cents on the dollar were really spent on turning out the API vote. And we did it ourselves. The community did. I applaud them. I would love to say it was our wonderful organizations that did that. It wasn't. It was organic. They did it on their own. And so if we can keep that flame alive with the API community, then I think we can continue flipping elections. It was our vote, we strongly believe, that flipped Arizona and Georgia for Joe Biden. And now we have the stats to prove it. So if we continue investing in the community, we'll be able to continue to run. I think we've got room to grow here still in future elections. Well, it's tough because so many of the organizations that are doing such great work are competing for the same donor dollars. And I always worry that within that, Within those communities, there's also going to be a marginalized community from the donations. And I'm wondering if you feel like racial justice orgs that are on the front line fighting for black and brown people should also be fighting for the AAPI community. I'm seeing some of that and I remain heartened about that. That's good. Yeah. So we often worked in our own silos in the API community. I often say that Doing politics in the API community is the hardest and most complex politics in the United States. Why is that? Because if I'm writing a campaign plan to increase turnout in a Georgia congressional district, my first job is to say, okay, what API communities live there? And if I find that it's predominantly Vietnamese, Chinese, Koreans, and let's say Filipinos, for example, Filipino Americans, then I have to write four different campaign plans if I were to do my job right, which means I have to figure out what print outlets are available for each of the communities, what Mm -hmm. radio outlets may exist, because this is how I'm going to reach my voters. Yeah, this is what we deal with all the time with Latinx. Exactly the same. And I used to say, and I've been schooled, I used to say that, oh, at least it's not as complex to do politics in the Latino community as it is in the API community, but I'm wrong. At the very least, there's a common language, right? But you don't reach, obviously, Cuban voters the same way you would Puerto Rican or Venezuelan voters. And the same goes for us. You don't go after Korean American voters the same way you would Vietnamese American voters. But it is highly complex. And you need to almost think three-dimensionally when you're doing campaign politics in the API community. And then layered on is, do they speak English or don't they? Filipinos and Indian Americans, they tend to have more English speakers. 
So recently, the House passed legislation aimed at fighting hate crimes, aimed at AAPI people. So it actually passed in the Senate several weeks ago, and it just passed in the House. So that's going to be a done deal, we hope. A new law aimed at countering a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes signed into law this afternoon by the president. President Biden says the legislation is part of the nation's first steps toward unity. The COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act creates a new position at the U.S. Justice Department that's going to expedite review of potential pandemic-related hate crimes and incidents reported at the federal, state, or even local level. It calls for the government to work with community-based organizations to raise awareness about hate crimes during the pandemic. It also requires the attorney general to establish a way to report the crimes online. The legislation passed the Senate with an overwhelming 94 to 1 vote in April. And what do you think the biggest obstacle to fighting AAPI hate is? Really what we're trying to fight more than anything is this invisibility in society. So lately you've been seeing more public awareness campaigns that are centered around seeing sort of the breadth and the depth of the API community on one hand. And the other thing that still needs to be done is that in D.C., we are often underrepresented in Congress and nationally, APIs are, I believe it's 43% underrepresented amongst all state legislature positions in the country. Those are some of the things that we can do is just encourage more people to run for office. And I think a large part has to do too with underrepresentation in Hollywood, where there's a bunch of whitewashing that continually goes on. There's stories that emanate from Asia, but yet you see white actors who often play Asians. And so part of this invisibility is if we're not being portrayed, people don't have an opportunity to really see what our culture is all about and who we are, us representing us and that sort of thing. So I think that will only scratch the surface, even if we fix those things. But I think we also have to do a much better job in vocalizing who we are in corporate workplaces and making sure that if microaggressions happen, that they're reported just so that they can't perpetuate. Some things that might be common conversation could really be hurtful to AAPIs. And I don't think that part has really been lifted up in America and certainly corporate America as much as it really should. Tell us about API Victory Alliance and the work that your organization does. We were started in 2017 as a outgrowth of something that's called the White House Commission for AAPIs. And under President Obama's White House Commission, several former commissioners, when their terms ended, and other commissioners who had resigned, frankly, in mass once Donald Trump got elected, because there was a little bit of overlap between the commission and Donald Trump getting elected. They were sort of kvetching behind the scenes for about a year, and we helped them start this organization as an outgrowth. And that commission really focused on doing a lot of the things that we do in the API Victory Alliance today, which is we activate 
Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders all around the country on issues of importance, ensuring that their voices are heard in state legislatures and halls of Congress to make sure that if onerous bills are being proposed or executive orders by an administration, that there's some pushback. Hi, friends. It's Nancy Pelosi. It's always a privilege to speak with the Asian American and Pacific Islander community whose energy, creativity, and diversity enriches our nation. But I also recognize that people of color in our nation are under attack from our own president, whether it's his insensitive remarks and handling of the peaceful protest or his statements on COVID-19 targeting Asian Americans, our nation needs a change. That is why I'm pleased that Shaker and the AAPI Victory Fund have been leading the effort to ensure that our country has the right leadership. Your work of empowering and mobilizing AAPI voters in the 2018 election was instrumental, and it will be critical in the 2020 election. In 2017, when we got formed, it was all pretty much we were playing defense. It was impossible to go on offense against the White House because pick your week and Donald Trump was going after one other section of our community. So now with Joe Biden in office, we are working with the administration to help lift up and make more aware of those things that are extremely important to our community, number one being representation. For the first time in over 20 years, we don't have an Asian American or Pacific Islander as a cabinet secretary. So we feel still hurt by that to a large degree because it really sets a bad precedent, especially now knowing that we helped deliver this election. And so it's something that we're going to continue to work with the administration on. But there are a whole host of things that going forward, we're going to continue doing and even break new ground. One of the things that we announced about a month ago was the launch of a new AAPI think tank. And for those folks who really don't know why that's so important, it's because at least in the D.C. landscape, laws that are often proposed, they emanate as policy papers that start in think tanks. They're noodled, they germinate, they get cross-fertilized, and then they could grow when passed into Congress they could turn into laws. And so generally speaking, there's no entity out there, think tank entity, that really looks at proposed policies from an AAPI lens first. There's a Black equivalent. There are some semblances of that in the Latino community, but none in the AAPI community. So we launched that. And in several weeks, we're going to announce our first board of advisors for the think tank. And we're going to lift up, frankly, gaps in the research, things that we don't know about the community. And we really should know, because if you're the fastest growing community in the country, we really need to dive deeper into what really makes this community tick. How do first generation Vietnamese Americans feel on gun violence prevention versus a third generation Vietnamese American? And how does language preference affect how they feel? So there is a whole bunch of things we don't know about the API community that this think tank is going to help lift up. It's really incredible. And I really feel like racial justice and the fight for racial justice cannot exclude the API community. Answer me this. How can people not only support the community, but also support specifically the API Victory Alliance? There have been dozens and dozens of articles written since 
February with the murders in Atlanta about organizations that are solid organizations. So support your local API communities, support your local API organizations. You can go to apivictoryalliance.com and support us directly. And one of the things that we're trying to do on a national scale is we've seen an amazing growth of organizations on the ground in pivotal battleground states since Trump got elected. There were two that existed in 2016, and now there are over a dozen in battleground states alone. And you should support API organizations everywhere, not just battleground states. But when you support them in battleground states, then you're providing perhaps a little bit of a more of insurance policy against a future despot <laughs> like Donald Trump, should he run again, to make sure that we've got folks on the ground who are investing in communicating with API voters year-round, agnostic of an election, just talking to them about local education issues or, frankly, the vicious anti-voting laws that are being passed in Georgia and Arizona and in Texas and Florida. And these local organizations, if they're properly funded and properly invested in, will be able to fight back a little bit more because we'll be able to organize year-round, 24-7, 365. And so that's why that part is important. And someone on the national level, like the API Victory Alliance, needs to ensure that all the local groups are coordinating best practices, tactics on how to reach specific Vietnamese voters or Korean voters or Indian voters or Filipino or Chinese. And so that's why there needs to be an organization at the top nationally doing their thing, ensuring that we've got access to folks in Congress and then the folks on the local ground who are essentially doing the same thing, talking to their local legislators to ensure that state governments work better for the voters in their specific states. And finally, what gives you hope? The community really gives me hope. They inspire me every single day by their voice, by their actions, by everything that they're doing right now to ensure that America is a better place, not for them and them alone. It's not so that they can necessarily secure their wealth. It's so that America is a better place. I often feel that the quilt that is America, the part of the quilt that is still being stitched into the fabric of society and the fabric of America is that last API patch. And when that is fully stitched, then and only then will the fabric of America truly be complete. We've got a long way to go. I mean, I would say that other communities probably feel like they have a long way to go. We stand in allyship with indigenous communities and Black and Latino communities, and frankly, all those underrepresented in America. And that's what gives me hope is that the optimism of working with folks like you and folks in the movement, in the progressive movement, when I don't think I've got one ounce left to give, when I think I can't get through one more freaking election, I get hope from folks who are just so tireless. And so that's what really gives me hope. And I know America is going to be a better place. Varun, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much for your time today. I said from the beginning of my campaign for president that we needed to come together, that we needed to unite as one people, one nation, one America. I said 
in my kickoff speech in Philadelphia, I said that very same thing when I spoke at Gettysburg. I said that in my inaugural address. And I believe with every fiber on my being, there are simply some core values and beliefs that should bring us together as Americans. One of them is standing together against hate, against racism, the ugly poison that has long haunted and plagued our nation. We have a history and an epidemic of hate in America. It's fueled by fear, by greed, by stupidity, by arrogance, and it needs to stop. We cannot look at our nation and say in good faith that we do not have a problem with identity-based hate. If you're fighting against racial injustice, it's important not to overlook one marginalized community in favor of another. It's all the same fight, and it has many of its origins in the same places. I worry that as activists and people who care deeply about America, that we sometimes get so deep in our specific causes that we miss the intersections. No one should be left behind. It's on each of us to take a look outside of our chimney once in a while and make sure we know what's happening outside. We need to work with our allies and not against them. It's the only way we'll win. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.